I'm sorry, what did you just say? Listen, they attacked us because they wanted the inventory stored here, so it's obvious. No more weapons, no more attacks. No, absolutely not! Opinion noted, Obi, but I am telling you, do it. Come on, Pepper. Tony, what's happened to you? Pepper, listen. I never should have made it out of that cave. Now I know what I have to do. I don't understand. My life's work, everything I've built, countless lives ruined by my inventions. I have to destroy them. You can't do this alone. It's too much. I don't have a choice. Look, I, I have to go on a business trip. What trip? Th there's nothing on your calendar. Just came up. Pack me back, will you? Welcome back to Comics on Consoles, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring the intersection between comics characters and their interactive adventures in video games, from someone who's a gamer, comics expert and former retailer, and all around, very, very, very tardy podcast creator. To those of you who very rightly bugged me for not getting more than one episode of this show out in 2017, thank you for your persistence. I don't really have any excuse, other than 2017 itself seemed to come with a lot of other things, like my marriage, along with the losses of both my maternal grandparents, but I also spent most of the back half of the year on another podcast endeavor, a show that my wife, Spawn on Me Cicero Holmes, and the multi-talented Zaki Hassan all host together, Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast. It mostly dealt with discussing each new episode of Star Trek Discovery, when a new one became available on the CBS All Access streaming service, but now we get together on a regular basis to examine a franchise we all love while we wait for the premiere of Discovery Season 2 sometime next year. If you're at all a fan of Adventures in the Final Frontier, please check our show out. We love taking deep dives into those boldly going space adventures. Another change that you may have noticed at the top of the show is a brand new musical composition to open us up, which is the brilliant work of my friend Chris Kubiak. Chris and I briefly co-hosted another podcast I was involved with in 2017, but he also does wonders in crafting kick-ass music, as you will hear at the beginning of every new issue of Comics on Consoles. So, once again to Chris, thank you, my friend. So that's basically my half-assed attempt to offer both an excuse and something of an update. If you're listening to this because you've enjoyed my prior issues and have hoped to see more, then thank you for your support and for sticking with me. We've also joined Patreon, and if you're interested in new episodes without the need for much of a wait, that's the best, most direct way to show your support. Anything is much appreciated. But now, finally, let's talk about a comics-based video game, shall we? Of course, though, in order to fully understand the game, we have to understand the character that game focuses on, 
and the journey that led his interactive adventures to our core subject. Finally, let's begin. Of all of the superheroes that have made the transition from page to screen, one of the most unlikely, at least when compared with his superheroic colleagues who hit the wider public consciousness much sooner, may be Tony Stark, otherwise known as Iron Man. Making his first appearance in Tales of Suspense number 39, cover dated March 1963, Iron Man's creation was the product of a collaboration between four different comics professionals according to the story of the character's creation found in Marvel Chronicle, a year-by-year -year history. Those creators were story plotter Stan Lee, story scripter Larry Lieber, issue penciler Don Heck, and cover artist and character designer Jack Kirby. On the creation of the industrialist superhero, and in a clear contrast to the wealth of the other more well-known superhero millionaire Bruce Wayne, Lee says that he envisioned Tony Stark as the, quote, quintessential capitalist, that went against the grain as far as Marvel's reader and creator culture of the era was concerned, with America still caught up in the optimistic zeitgeist brought about by the election of John F. Kennedy to the presidency of the United States a few years earlier. In a behind-the-scenes documentary found on the home release of the Iron Man film, Lee remarked on his contribution to the creation of the character by saying, Well, it was a funny thing. It was, I think I gave myself a dare. It was the height of the Cold War. The readers, the young readers, if there was one thing they hated, it was war, it was the military, or as Eisenhower called it, the military-industrial complex. So I got a hero who represented that to a hundredth degree. He was a weapons manufacturer. He was providing weapons for the army. He was rich. He was an industrialist. But he was a good-looking guy, and he was courageous. I thought it would be fun to take the kind of character that nobody would like, none of our readers would like, and shove him down their throat and make them like him. And because of the fact that Tony Stark was such a great guy, see, I, I, I kind of had Howard Hughes in mind when I was thinking of Tony. He was a, without being crazy, he was Howard Hughes. Um, and he became very popular. While Jack Kirby is credited with designing the look of the suit we now know as Tony's Mark I armor, Don Heck is credited with the specific designs of characters that weren't in metal suits, like Tony himself and Pepper Potts. In a 1985 interview, Heck also revealed that the later version of the armor, with the more recognizable red and yellow color scheme, was actually designed by Spider-Man co-creator Steve Ditko. Tony's focus and demeanor shifted significantly, even throughout his early history. Originally envisioned largely as an anti-communist superhero, a focus Lee later said he would come to regret, according to an interview in 1975, Stark became far more focused on the constantly evolving changes in technology that the world would see, no doubt punctuated by America's forays into space travel throughout the 1960s, and the feeling of general futurism that gripped society's collective imagination for the time.
Tony also underwent significant character explorations uncommon for superhero comics throughout the 1970s, culminating in the now legendary story arc Demon in a Bottle by David Michelini, Bob Layton, John Romita Jr., and Carmine Infantino from 1979. The most defining element of Iron Man for many readers, though, comes from his association with Marvel's premier superhero unit, the Avengers. He was there from the beginning in 1963's The Avengers No. 1, and has been an important pillar of virtually every major incarnation of that team from its inception up through the modern day. It's kind of hard to think of a time where you could go to a movie theater at any given point in a year and not see some new high-quality cinematic offering from Marvel Studios based on the Avengers, the Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Man, or Doctor Strange. Given their now decade-long streak of box office dominance, what's become known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the shared world that encompasses all the Marvel Studios films, is just as ubiquitous in geek culture and wider pop culture itself, as it is financially successful. Still, even as we prepare for the release of Avengers Infinity War, in order to fully understand this issue's subject game, we have to wind the clocks back to a time before the Guardians declared their dominion over the galaxy, before Scott Lang had his fateful meeting with Hank Pym, and before the Avengers assembled all on screen. First, though, let me tell you about my personal journey towards appreciation for Iron Man. It was kind of a long road, and certainly wasn't immediate, even after I began seeing him on a regular basis in comics. Like a lot of comic book fans of the early to mid-2000s, I was initially drawn to Iron Man well after his major character traits were established, and by the time Marvel had begun orienting him as a relatable antagonist, but still an antagonist, in the far-reaching Civil War comic book arc. After championing the Superhuman Registration Act, which would lead, in a roundabout way, to the assassination of Captain America, Stark would become the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., and assumed leadership over a new Avengers initiative, which then led to a new ongoing comic book series for the character by writer Matt Fraction and artist Salvador LaRocca. The first issue of this new series coincided its launch right around the time of the movie's premiere, and with my curiosity sufficiently piqued, I picked up issue number one. It was in this series, Invincible Iron Man, that I truly began to understand and attach to Tony Stark. A guy who's sure of his skill and his intelligence, Tony bristles at being a full-on leader, but doesn't shy away from that responsibility either. He knows that his true strengths, like being the best technology innovator in the world, and thinking in terms of man interfacing with machines, can often be the difference between victory and defeat. Invincible Iron Man was a constant joy to read throughout its entire run, because it concerned itself with showing its readers the man underneath the suit, with the technological aspects serving in a secondary capacity to the heart at the core of the mechanized armor. It was the perfect book to introduce me, full-on, to Marvel's Iron Man. Still, as strong a character as Tony is, his journey toward the silver screen would be a long and arduous one, requiring him to prove himself to both filmmakers and even prospective audiences before they could even think about rolling the camera. I think bogey has been handled, sir. Right 
Hello? Hi, Rody, it's me. It's who? I'm sorry, it is me. You asked what you're asking about is me. No, see, this isn't a game. You do not send civilian equipment into my active war zone. You understand that? This is not a piece of equipment. I'm in it. It's a suit. It's me! Rody, you got anything for me? Like a lot of comic book properties trying to make it to the screen in the early 2000s, Tony's journey was filled with more twists and turns than even Warren Ellis and A.D. Granov's definitive modern tale, Extremis. As we've discussed here before, the comic book superhero genre of film didn't really kick off in the era we're enjoying today until the year 2000, three years after Batman's last embarrassing cinematic outing, and a whopping 13 years since the last time the Man of Steel had flown across the big screen. The success of both the original X-Men movie and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in particular made a lot of studios stand up and try to throw their names into the betting game of superheroic box office dominance. This would make the early 21st century very Marvel-heavy at the movies, since Warner Brothers were still licking their wounds regarding the total failure of Batman and Robin, and, unlike the DC characters, more marquee properties of Marvel's were up for grabs by other studios. WB wasn't very interested in farming out their DC licenses to other competitors, since they had the advantage of having their parent company actually own DC Comics and all of its potentially lucrative IP totally outright. No similar scenario with Marvel characters existed in those years, and due to the House of Ideas only recently recovering from a late 90s bout of bankruptcy, you found that some of their biggest names movie rights were kind of all over Hollywood. Iron Man was no exception. The film rights to the Iron Man character were actually initially purchased by Universal Studios in 1990, with cult horror writer-director Stuart Gordon of Reanimator fame planning to serve as producer. Things never went anywhere, and six years later the rights for Iron Man found themselves instead at 20th Century Fox, with such names as Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, and even Quentin Tarantino being bandied about to become involved at different levels. Alas, though, things never went anywhere at the future home of the X-Men either, and in December of 1997, the rights to the Armored Avenger were then sold off to New Line Cinema. Why? Well, according to Fox executives, they had too many Marvel superhero films in development, and they said in a December 1999 story in the Memphis Commercial Appeal that they, quote, simply can't make them all. That's a bit funny on its own, considering that it seems like they would try to do just that only a few years later. Daredevil. Welcome to the future. X-Men. Electra. Fantastic Four. This film is not yet ready. Anyways, by July of 2000, and after X-Men established itself as a hit, New Line began ramping up their attempted production of Iron Man with a script by Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio, and Tim McCanleys. McCanleys, in particular, the screenwriter of The Iron Giant, would likely end up being one of the bigger unsung heroes of what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Why? Because according to a December 2000 report from Comics to Film, a website I often obsessively visited and refreshed repeatedly in my browser window throughout my adolescence, it was McCanleys who thought of the idea of placing Nick Fury 
Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., in Iron Man for a cameo appearance to set up the idea of a future Fury solo film down the line. That idea, obviously, persisted through to the final product we ultimately got in 2008, but was clearly ramped up significantly to a, uh, universal scale. Although New Line would make a lot of attempts to get Iron Man off the proverbial ground with names like Joss Whedon, Alfred Goff, and Miles Miller of Smallville fame, and David Hayter, things simply never materialized. The result was that New Line would return the rights to Iron Man directly to Marvel, who quickly stated their intent to create Iron Man as their first independent feature. While initially encountering resistance to the creation of a big multimedia project for Iron Man due to the perception of the hero as a relative C-lister on Marvel's character roster, the company conducted some focus groups to remove the perception that the character was a robot in the wider consciousness. Ultimately, Marvel went their own way and continued development and financing themselves, which culminated in the hiring of Elf and Zathura director John Favreau in April of 2006. Obviously, this time, things would work out beyond the best. Favreau's approach to the material, unlike a lot of previous comics film directors, was to actually get input from the very people who had been successfully telling stories with Tony for, by that point, over 40 years. Favreau was one of the first superhero film directors to get the advice of some of Marvel's best writers and editors, including Mark Miller, Brian Michael Bendis, Joe Quesada, Tom Brevoort, Axel Alonso, and Ralph Macchio. Favreau would also later cite the importance of Matt Fraction's contemporary work on the character as highly informative to what Marvel Studios would end up doing with Tony Stark in a leadership role. The director most certainly deserves a lot of credit for wanting to craft a movie that would be recognizable, not just to Iron Man fans, but even to his creators. He took an idea that Christopher Nolan had had while that filmmaker was crafting what would become Batman Begins and ran with it in his own more truthful direction. Not even Nolan would enlist more than one or two people familiar with his character's source material, but Favreau actually created something of a committee of Marvel Comics professionals to bounce ideas off of. Nowadays, high-profile creators at Marvel often help in crafting the stories for MCU feature films to varying degrees of involvement, which certainly hasn't been doing those movies any harm. If only Warner Brothers would consider giving that a try these days. Now, though, at long last, we arrive at the whole reason for our being here. Video games. Since it would still be a few years before the apparent necessity for movies to games adaptations would dry up with both movie studios and game developers, a game experience based on the first Iron Man movie was a bit of a no-brainer for its time. Unsurprisingly, though, a movie adaptation was not the first time that Tony Stark made it to the interactive medium. Compared with some of his other peers at Marvel, Iron Man's gaming history is relatively brief because it only goes back to the 1990s, 1991 to be exact, and even then it would be over a decade before he actually got a solo video game experience of his very own. The Avengers!
in 91, Iron Man was a selectable character in the Data East arcade game Captain America and the Avengers, marking his inaugural step into the interactive medium. He ended up getting shafted for that same game's version on the NES, though, when he was removed as a full-on playable character and actually became a damsel that Captain America and Hawkeye would need to go out and save from the Mandarin, his own arch-nemesis. That game also ended up getting versions on almost every major platform of its time, including the Sega Genesis, or Mega Drive, in 1992, the SNES and Game Gear in 93, and the Game Boy in 94. Data East made another arcade game in the same series in 1995 called Avengers in Galactic Storm, but Iron Man only showed up as an assist character to help out one of the other playable heroes. He, along with Thor, Vision, and Giant Man, ended up getting passed over in the playable slots for Captain America and other well-known household name Avengers like Thunderstrike, Black Knight, and Crystal. Huh. His next playable appearance was in a pretty unique crossover game between Marvel and, of all publishers, Valiant Comics in 1996. Iron Man and Exo Manowar in Heavy Metal was released on the Sega Saturn, Sony PlayStation, PC, Game Gear, and Game Boy, but failed to make a very positive impression with critics and gamers. Still, what an interesting game. There has to be a story there worth exploring someday, right? Iron Man would also be a playable character for a series of solid games developed by Capcom, he was a playable character in the 1996 SNES-exclusive Marvel Superheroes in War of the Gems, the forerunner to the now-popular Marvel vs. Capcom series in 1995's Marvel Superheroes, and of course, he was a marquee fighter in Marvel vs. Capcom 2 in the year 2000. As we alluded to, though, his first true solo outing would finally come a couple of years later, but not on a typical console. Instead, it arrived on the handheld Game Boy Advance in December of 2002. The Invincible Iron Man, developed by Australian house Taurus Games and published by Activision, is a relatively typical 2D platformer and beat-em-up that charges the player with taking down some criminals who've stolen one of Iron Man's suits. Taurus was no stranger to games based on comics characters, particularly for handhelds, since they were also on the team that made 2001's Spider-Man 2 The Sinister Six on the Game Boy Color, 2005's Fantastic Four and 2006's Spider-Man The Battle for New York, also on the Game Boy Advance, and a version of Battle for New York on the Nintendo DS that same year. That's truly just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to their extensive resume, though, and their experience shows in The Invincible Iron Man. While you might think that the game is relatively standard fare for its time if you're watching footage of it, it's pretty easy to have quite a bit of fun with it. Perfectly competent in both form and function, The Invincible Iron Man can sometimes monotonize you with enemies, but Iron Man's repulsors make for a solid ranged weapon, while also having the ability to be charged up for a more devastating attack. There is a balance to be made, though, since the two meters on your heads-up display are dedicated to your health and your suit's power level. 
your charged-up repulsor shot consumes way more power than your basic shots, so you shouldn't pull that out unless you really need to get out of a pinch. Thankfully, power and health pickups aren't particularly hard to come by, and by the standards of other 2D superhero games, Invincible Iron Man has a pretty generous level of difficulty that makes it both easy, and more importantly, fun, to play. There's also a very fair comparison to be made for the way Iron Man plays in this game when compared with another character, himself one of the most timeless icons in the entire video game medium. As he pointed out in a recent YouTube video appearing on friend of the show Chris Baker's channel discussing his Spider Madness video game bracket, which decided the greatest game for the webslinger, Blair Farrell of ComicGamersAssemble.com draws a clear link between Tony in this game and another character who has roots in partial mechanization. The first Iron Man Game Boy Advance game, which is one of the greatest superhero handheld games ever, it's essentially Mega Iron Man. Like, that's what it feels like. You have a charge and a dash, and it feels like a Mega Man game. Since this game arrived nearly six years before Tony would make the transition to a big-budget motion picture, it came and went with relatively little fanfare in the gaming press. Thankfully, it was reasonably well-received when it came out, but common criticisms from both GameSpot's Frank Provo and IGN's Craig Harris centered on it being a little too short to be substantive. Still, the recommendation here stands. If you have a GBA lying around or are in the mood for a Mega Man-inspired superhero game with tight controls and fun level design, consider tracking down The Invincible Iron Man and give it a try. Moving on, the rest of the time between 2002 and 2008 was mostly filled with Iron Man cameos in other Marvel games, including an awesome brief appearance in 2005's The Punisher, the subject of Comics on Consoles issue number 6, by the way, as well as unlockable appearances in both 2003's, um, Tony Hawk's Underground? Am I reading that right? Huh? Yeah, looks like it. <clears throat> and 2005's X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse. The final pre-Iron Man movie video game appearances for the character included being a main hero in 2005's Marvel Nemesis Rise of the Imperfects, published by EA, as well as a major appearance in the highly influential Marvel Ultimate Alliance in 2006, where he serves as a playable character alongside an army of other Marvel heroes. After that, the road was clear. It was finally time to introduce a new solo Tony Stark game to the masses on the heels of his first major motion picture. In a deal signed in 2003, publisher Activision, Marvel's partner for several well-received X-Men and Spider-Man games up to that point, as well as the 2002 Iron Man GBA game, had apparently secured the rights to four key Marvel franchises through 2009. They would continue their partnership for the X-Men and with Spider-Man, as well as create experiences based on the Fantastic Four, and, yep, you guessed it, Iron Man. It wouldn't quite end up going down that way, though. In July of 2006, at Comic-Con International in San Diego, Marvel Studios released a teaser poster for Iron Man with its May 2nd, 2008 release date, emblazoned on the bottom of a beautiful image rendered by Iron Man extremis artist Adi Granoff. This led some members of the gaming press to reach out to Activision and ask what the status was on their inevitably upcoming Iron Man game project, 
to tie in with the movie. And what was their answer? Well, it basically amounted to something along the lines of, Uh, that's not us anymore. An Activision rep told GameSpot's Tor Thorson that the publisher no longer held the rights to make a game based on the Armored Avenger and did not offer any additional information. Marvel, however, offered that a new video game license holder would be revealed for their upcoming blockbuster by the fall of that year. It took a little while, but in early November of 2006, the new publisher of Iron Man would be revealed, and the way toward our subject game was now becoming clearer. In the November 2006 announcement, Marvel stated that the new license holder for Iron Man was none other than the house that Sonic built a company that would be returning to the Marvel Comics IP for the first time since the 1990s. Sega. While no specific platforms were mentioned, the announcement did specify that the new partnership would cover both the movie and classic comic book iterations of the character, while also cryptically teasing that the deal regarding the old shellhead would be just a first step in a new partnership, with at least one more superhero character apparently getting ready to shack up with both Iron Man and the Blue Hedgehog. By April of 2007, now just about a year shy of Iron Man's release, Sega and Marvel made a joint announcement about a new multi-year deal concerning new video game endeavors for several of Marvel's storied properties. According to early promotional interviews and press releases, Sega and Marvel had reached an agreement to create games based on four specific characters, Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Thor, and Captain America. While people weren't exactly sure in 2007 how Cap and Thor would enter the mix with Marvel Studios, at least not quite as sure as they soon would be, Iron Man and the Hulk didn't have much ambiguity attached to them. They both had movies due out the following year. Interestingly, during the initial interviews, Sega representatives seemed to be aware perhaps painfully so, of the less-than-stellar reputation that comic book games, and more specifically movie-based games, had had for most of their existence. When asked about this directly by IGN's Greg Miller not long after the announcement of the Marvel-Sega deal, Sega VP of Marketing Scott Steinberg had some seemingly encouraging words on the subject, all of which were oriented around the idea that the technology offered by the then-new generation of hardware of the Xbox 360 and PS3 may make that reputation a thing of the past. Steinberg said, in a quote that I need to uh, paraphrase to get through typically muddy producer speak, With the next-gen tech being what it is, I believe that there will be an actual renaissance period with how publishers are adapting comic book movies into games because the technology has never been closer with what movie studios and game developers are both doing. So, I think that we can articulate a movie's vision into a game better than any time in our industry, and feel like we can make a game that truly lives up to the promise of a movie. And once again, I have no idea how that guy sounds. That's just kind of my guess, considering what he was saying. So, uh, yeah kind of a roundabout way of saying that he felt that the latest, greatest technology would somehow inoculate comics-based video games from being bad, which is an 
optimistic perspective, to say the least. Be that as it may, with the Iron Man film on the horizon and an opportunity for a development house to potentially make their names known alongside it, it was time to assign the team that would ultimately make Iron Man a reality in the interactive medium on the cutting-edge hardware of its time. So who would be the team charged with bringing Tony Stark into the modern realm of video games? That task fell to a relatively young game studio based out of San Francisco, California. Secret Level Incorporated. The early days for Secret Level as a game development studio were auspicious ones. Having established a level of camaraderie with the larger and more well-known studio Epic Games based out of Cary, North Carolina, the very first project to brandish the name Secret Level that shipped to consumers was a port of Epic's Unreal Tournament, which they brought over to the fledgling Sega Dreamcast in 2001. It was a bit more than just a straight port, though, since Secret Level streamlined existing content and created a few new additions in order to make the formerly PC-only game more appealing to console gamers. It paid off, too with the Dreamcast game getting very positive critical attention when it first came out, earning an Editor's Choice Award from IGN, and garnering a very high score of 90 on the review aggregation site Metacritic. The solid collaboration would endear Secret Level to the devs at Epic Games for years to come, with SL creating some development tools for Epic to use in the construction of new projects for the forthcoming new console generation. SL also made names for themselves by developing tools for game designers to use that streamlined the process of making user interfaces, which was used regularly for a few years by high-profile developers including LucasArts. Coincidentally, that would begin another positive and fruitful collaboration. LucasArts would enlist Secret Level in creating console ports of their prequel-era Star Wars Starfighter games to the original Microsoft Xbox, which also included the creation of new content exclusive to versions of both Starfighter and its follow-up Jedi Starfighter on that console. While not quite as well-received as their work on the Unreal series, both console ports of the Star Wars efforts enjoy relatively high Metacritic ratings just shy of 80. Secret Level was also a developer that seemingly had its eye on shouldering certain projects in order to recruit and expand its in-house team of designers in key areas. A primary example of this is their first solely original game project, an interactive 3D translation of the popular card game known as Magic the Gathering Battlegrounds, released in 2003 and published by Infogrames under the Atari label. In addition to being generally well received by both gamers and core Magic players of the time, SL used the necessity this project created to aggressively expand their art department, allowing for greater flourish and autonomy on the art design side for future projects. The next few years saw quite a lot of activity for Secret Level. In 2003, they were tapped by a rather unusual game dev client. The United States Department of Defense, along with publisher Ubisoft, to bring the Army's recruitment video game, America's Army, to the wide console gaming space. Released for the original Xbox in early 2004, America's Army Rise of a Soldier 
featured new elements crafted by SL, including a story mode based on a real soldier's experiences in Afghanistan during the early days of the War on Terror, as well as a few additional maps in order to appeal more readily to console gamers. Unfortunately, the game only ever released on one platform, the Xbox. A version was being worked on for the PlayStation 2, but SL reportedly had too much difficulty in getting the game to run at a stable frame rate on that console, so plans were abandoned for its release. Still, the project on its own was lucrative enough for Secret Level to aggressively expand its rankings again, this time in the game design department. That expansion got them several smaller work-for-hire projects between 2004 and 2006, and it was that newly developed pedigree of the company that got the attention of a major player in the video games industry. Sega! As many devoted gamers are all too painfully aware, the era of the early 2000s was something of a transitionary period for the former hardware developer. The days of Sega going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Nintendo for 16- and 32-bit dominance was far behind them, and it was the outright sales failure of their final home console, the Dreamcast, that caused Sega to abandon any future plans for hardware development and to focus instead on game developing and publishing. Part of the self-attributed reason for Sega's string of difficulties near the end of their time in the hardware space was a lack of software that was oriented around a Western audience, emphasizing their core Japanese devotees over their North American and European counterparts. In order to rectify that in their new role as a game publisher, Sega began making acquisitions for game developers that could help them strengthen their stance in the Western market. Their first acquisition with this goal in mind was UK-based development house Creative Assembly. After agreeing to publish Assembly's first console video game, 2005's hack-and-slash adventure Spartan Total Warrior, Sega then purchased the company outright for as little as $30 million. Still, there was no indication that Sega was done in trying to poach other development houses and bring them into their fold. A mere seven months after their acquisition of Creative Assembly, and after America's Army had proven to be a solid sales success on the Xbox, Sega announced that it would purchase Secret Level outright for a paltry $15 million, a steal by most accounts, and reportedly a reaction to the publisher being impressed with the development of SL's then-current project. Golden Axe Beast Rider, the first 3D entry in the long-running Sega franchise that had 2D outings on the Master System, Genesis, and Mega Drive, the Sega CD, and the Game Gear by that point. To the outside fan or business analyst, it certainly looked like a mutually beneficial exchange. Secret Level would now have the reputation and resources of a globally renowned video game brand at their disposal, while Sega would have the newly bolstered Western game development house make games for them in the market they saw as key to their future success and prosperity. Unfortunately, Sega's acquisition of the studio would also prove to be something of a kiss of death. In total, Secret Level developed only three games for Sega, one of them being the aforementioned Golden Axe, and another being our subject game. What is the measure of a man? Is it the fruit of his labors? Or the secrets of his heart? Is it the person he is? Or the hero he could become? 
As already said, Secret Level was purchased by Sega while they were already in the middle of developing the 3D Golden Axe game, and it was apparently during their time working on that project that the first ultimate crimp in our issues subject game came up. Sega assigned their new subsidiary the Iron Man project for the new generation of consoles, and expected Secret Level to develop both Golden Axe and a AAA superhero experience simultaneously, splitting their resources among both projects. As the good soldiers they were in answering to their new generals, they took the responsibility of the high-profile IP both in stride and to heart, and began to work in earnest on the game that would become Iron Man on the Xbox 360, PS3, and PC, and although they now had a daunting task of dual development in front of them, to their credit they took the new addition to their workload head-on, bringing new hires into the fold, and making a lot of good decisions from the outset. It was also clear that, though the road ahead would be difficult, Secret Level was also wise enough to recognize the kind of opportunity that would be represented by taking on both A, a game that would be tied into one of 2008's most highly anticipated media events, and B, a major untapped superhero from one of the world's most recognized comic book publishers. In speaking about what Iron Man represented for the studio itself, its director, Jeremy Gordon, said this. Iron Man means a lot to our company. It's a chance to really reach out and hit the mass market in a way that we don't often get the chance to do. Marvel's internal games division responsible for licensing their properties out to external developers also saw Sega's approach with Secret Level as positive, considering that the publisher had basically oriented their new acquisition around the Iron Man intellectual property. When it comes to conception, Sega definitely had the right idea. Secret Level was young enough, and hungry enough, that they would throw everything they had into making Iron Man the most it could possibly be with the resources that they had. In fact, in some officially released promotional materials covering the making of the game, Secret Level's vice president, Reeve Thompson, talked about one of the key elements that Secret Level thought they could overcome, an aspect that the vast majority of licensed games seem to struggle with significantly by the end of their development cycle. Time. Thompson said, The problem with a lot of licensed games is that they don't have enough time. So one of the ideas behind acquiring a studio like Secret Level was, hey, if we acquire Secret Level and we then go and sign a license with Marvel, we can go instantly to Secret Level and say, hey guys, we have this great license, start working right now. While Mr. Thompson's statement makes for a great and somewhat encouraging soundbite for a video designed to hype up the game, notice that he left one pretty key detail out of that statement. Yes, at the drop of a hat, Sega could go to secret level and dictate to them that it's time to start working on an Iron Man game, but he didn't say exactly when they did that, nor did he specify how long the game's development time actually was. In the political science world, that's what we call a pivot. So, the proverbial table was set. After agreeing to take on the task of making Iron Man, the studio then actually had to get to work in both designing and implementing how Tony's AAA superhero adventure would actually mechanically work. When taking a critical look at the abilities that define Iron Man, from a design perspective, Secret Level was starting to see that there was actually quite a few interchangeable development challenges between Iron Man and a character like Superman. 
I mean, he's often referred to as invincible, he can fly, he has ranged energy weapons, he's super strong. Need I go on? As I likely don't need to remind anyone who listens to this show, Superman is often seen as something of a pariah by game developers because of his immense power level and low number of weaknesses. While Iron Man himself doesn't have as many of those problems as Superman does, from a basic perspective of game design, many of the problems that have plagued Superman game designers for years were making their way into Secret Level's offices. Game director Jeffrey Tsang and Marvel Studios VP of Interactive, Justin Lambros. How are we gonna do this? This guy, he can, he can do everything. He can fly as fast as airplanes, he can hover, he can get on the ground and ground pound and shoot far away. He's got super strength, he's got you know, the armor shield, the unit beam, the repulsor blast, all these different things. You've gotta balance gameplay. So how do you make it so that all these, all these things that he can do are viable tactics? And, and you don't say, you know, I can just get through the game by sitting back, or I can just get through the game by charging in. Before beginning development in earnest, the devs at Secret Level went through a relatively typical process, though with a bit of an expedited pace. They created a very simple prototype, which illustrated how the basic gameplay would function with low-detail, untextured polygons in very simplistic 3D environments. Obviously, the key way locomotion would be accomplished would be in using the repulsors on the Iron Man armor to both hover and fly. You can also break into a faster, more typical flying motion and use the camera to lock onto hostiles and fire the hand-based repulsors at enemy targets, but you could also slow into a hover for more fine-tuned and accurate repulsor shots. Hovering is also the primary way to employ the most powerful weapon in your arsenal, the Unibeam, which you can charge up at a target and blast from the center arc reactor core found on Iron Man's chest. Focusing in on Tony Stark's status in the movie as the world's premier designer of advanced weapons, Iron Man is outfitted with a formidable array of missiles and other projectiles on top of his repulsors and the Unibeam. Of course, though, one of the things that Secret Level had to contend with in the design phase is the fact that while in his armor, Iron Man can also use his advanced technology to break the pull of the Earth's gravity and soar among the clouds. Undoubtedly aware of the movie's now unforgettable sequence showcasing Iron Man's ability to fly for the first time, at least on some level, they also likely knew that they would be judged based on the ability of other games to give players the feeling of freedom that only comes with seeing your character leap into the air. Flight control needed to be responsive and effortless, but it also had to feel like there was a significant amount of weight behind it because of the mass added to Tony by his armor. So, in addition to crafting flight controls that are tight, fluid, and responsive, the level design also had to play into the flight element too. To fulfill the promise of flying with Iron Man's stabilizers in your boots, SL's level designers crafted large, open-spaced environments for Iron Man to effortlessly move from one corner of a specific map to another. Also added into the flight mechanics was a heavy boost sacrificing a degree of maneuverability for the sake of covering as much distance as possible in a relatively short time span. It seems that Secret Level very much felt that to get across the idea of Iron Man himself being something of a one-man army, most of the challenges in the game should be represented by, well, multi-man armies. So, the basic gist of the gameplay in Iron Man is as follows. You enter the far south side of a wide open game map and are often given an objective by either your AI Jarvis 
or your buddy Colonel James Rhodes to destroy particular targets or buildings. You begin flying toward your objective and encounter resistance in the form of tanks, anti-aircraft guns, and missile launchers. That's a very basic characterization of the general way that most of the game's 14 levels play out, with the exception of the first and last examples. Design-wise, Secret Level had access to the art assets of the film, and had even had conversations with its director, John Favreau, about how they can tighten things up to make the video game an authentic extension of the movie in as many ways as possible. One of the key positive results from this is that the actual Iron Man suits in the game, all of them, look phenomenal. Specifically, the primary Mark III suit has an extraordinarily high degree of fidelity to the model we see in the film, up to and including the aileron flaps on the back that pulse and move depending on the direction that you fly in. The relatively detailed environments, at least from up high, coupled with the extreme polish and detail on the Iron Man armor itself, made me, in 2008, literally look between game footage and movie trailers and awe at the closeness that Secret Level seemed to achieve in the graphical design of the game. Unfortunately, one of the ways the closeness to the movie actually drew the game back is in its story. Unlike some other recent comic book movie games of the time, Iron Man chooses to basically retell, in a very loose capacity, the story of the movie. You begin in Afghanistan, under capture of the Ten Rings, just as Tony and his captive compatriot Yinsen do in the movie, and the first thing you do in the game is break out in your Mark I armor, which also gives you a basic tutorial for the movement controls. The story itself, though, is very bare-bones, and doesn't feature nearly enough expository work to actually stand apart from the film in any meaningful way. The game very much expects you to have seen the movie in order to connect the dots. After a bit of a whirlwind at Secret Level and getting the job to develop the game, splitting their development staff between two concurrent projects, putting the time in and finally packaging it for shipment, May of 2008 was now upon the studio, with all eyes on the impending arrival of the movie event led by the Invincible Iron Man. It was time to unleash this relatively lesser-known hero on an unsuspecting public with both a major motion picture and a AAA video game, and see how he would take when it came to the love of the masses. At the time, you found no one looking more forward to May 2nd, 2008 than yours truly. No one's allowed to talk, is that it? You can't talk? No, you intimidate them. Good God, you're a woman. <laughs> is it better to be feared? Unfortunately for me, and unlike virtually every other comic book movie that's come out since I had the ability to drive, Iron Man was not a movie I was able to take in on a midnight or first showing. On Thursday, May 1st, I had to leave work early and have my father drive me to the dentist's office so I could undergo the removal of my wisdom teeth. Ugh. That procedure, unsurprisingly, basically sidelined me for that whole weekend. Not only would I not be able to watch Iron Man in the first showing, but I'd also have to miss the very first free comic book day that came around as an employee of a comic book store, which is not a good day to stay at home, as I'm sure many comic book retailers who may be listening to this know all too well. 
This also meant that I'd be unable to pick up my pre-order for Iron Man on the Xbox 360 at a local game store, which just seemed to add insult to injury. Thankfully, though, my father would come to the rescue. By Sunday, May the 4th, before that day had been claimed by a galaxy far, far away, I was able to move to a lower dosage of the painkillers the dentist had put me on after the wisdom teeth removal, which meant that I wouldn't be a groggy mess by that Sunday evening. So, my dad, my brother-in-law, and my young niece all journeyed to the theater together that night to take in Iron Man on the big screen. I don't remember exactly what I was expecting, but I do remember this. I was not disappointed. As a movie, Iron Man was a lot of different things. It was a relatively typical superhero origin story told in a very unique and atypical way. From my perspective, there was absolutely nothing about Tony Stark in the early going of the film's runtime that was at all redeemable. And I wasn't sure, even knowing most of the details of his comic book origin story, that Robert Downey Jr. would give me an in to actually liking anything about this guy. Slowly, though, the building blocks of a hero began to emerge. While Downey most definitely made the part of Tony Stark his own, with a flair that might even make Captain Jack Sparrow blush, the responsibility that emerged by the time Tony had fully come into his own made it nearly impossible not to root for him. Downey had crafted a unique, funny, brilliant, and tactical hero out of something far more akin to a man emblazoned across embarrassing TMZ headlines, while also managing to say something about the hubris that can come from wealth, from security, and from a certain flavor of ideological blindness. As a movie, Iron Man, perhaps more than being an origin story, has always been far more of a redemption story to me. And that's why it certainly managed to stick with me, even considering everything that we would get in the Marvel Cinematic Universe over the course of the next decade following its release. Audiences, similarly, took notice. Iron Man seemed to surprise a significant number of critics with its compelling narrative about this very unlikely superhero, and it was also proving to be a hit with the base of Marvel Comics fans for the obvious attention paid to the mythology by the studio and the director, at least if my comic book customers were any indication. After positive word of mouth, along with an engaging and, for many people, a new superhero to attach to, Iron Man sailed to continued critical acclaim, along with a final worldwide box office total that came to almost $600 million. It made it within the top 10 for worldwide grosses, while also managing to be the second highest grossing movie in the United States in 2008. Second only to Christopher Nolan's Batman follow-up, The Dark Knight. So, on one hand, the arrival of the Iron Man game was very fortuitous. The movie had done its job on the business end, and the game was available on store shelves day and date with the theatrical bow of the movie. Hopefully, gamers would be so enthralled by the movie they just saw that they would walk into their local video game retailer and plop down another $60 to buy further into the hype surrounding the true pop culture arrival of Tony Stark. So, at this point, we've gone over the Iron Man character, we've discussed where he's been before in the realm of video games, 
we've discussed how the movie itself went from a long streak of development hell and finally coalesced into the first step into a larger world that enthralls global audiences to this day. We've also discussed how Iron Man's new game publisher sought to make a good, solid, representative, interactive adventure designed all around the abilities of the Armored Avenger. So, how is the actual game? Well... Oh boy, uh, where do I begin? One primary feeling that's difficult to escape after picking up a controller to actually play Iron Man is that it's a carnival of missed opportunities because of some very odd and honestly baffling design choices on the part of the developers. Speaking personally, I don't know if I've ever played a game that was so easy to get caught up in and excited about that then cascaded into feelings of rage and frustration that would give games like Ghosts and Goblins or Batman Dark Tomorrow a run for their money. Now to be clear, Iron Man is most certainly a better game than the subject of our fifth issue, and it gets a lot of things right when it comes to the design philosophy that steered much of the basic function of Iron Man's power and abilities granted by the suit. When you begin the game, starts in the same place that the movie truly begins in earnest, in the hills of Afghanistan, under the thumb of the Ten Rings, as they demand that Tony build them weapons. While the presentation for the game's era isn't bad in the opening cutscenes, someone with keen ears will likely notice a very strange and frankly jarring discrepancy in the audio presentation centered on the voice cast, specifically the voice of the man himself, Tony Stark. Listen here. As he's being forced to work alongside his cellmate and fellow prisoner Jensen, both film actors, Robert Downey Jr. and Sean Tube, respectively, reprise their roles. Here is one of their earliest interactions as you begin the game's campaign. Alone in a cave, surrounded by weapons. That is a very poetic way to die. Oh, there he goes again. Give it a rest, Shakespeare. Not bad, right? Both men do a pretty good job in evoking their characters from the movie. Now, just about a minute and a half later, listen to another interaction between the two men. Here, Tony has just been bolted into his freshly minted Mark I armor, and Yinsen is feeding you objective information over the radio. Listen carefully to Iron Man. Well, probably not that carefully, but take note. Yinsen, you owe me 50 bucks. It works. Yes, you're quite good at your job. These men were right to kidnap you. You could have built great weapons for them. We're getting out of here. Oh, yes? Not so easy. They will want that suit, I think. Yeah, well, good luck getting it. Did you hear that? For some reason, Sega and Secret Level secured Robert Downey Jr.'s involvement, but for the lion's share of the game's material, it's not Downey who's providing the voice of the main character. Instead, it's only in the cutscenes where Tony does not have a helmet over his face 
that you actually hear the real, true voice of the film's star reprising his role. Every other time, when Iron Man is in his armor, i.e. most of the time you'll put in with the game, the main hero is actually played by voice actor Stephen Stanton, likely best known today by genre fans as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars Rebels, coming out with a somewhat pale imitation of Downey in the final product. This is obviously a strange choice, and a seemingly needlessly complicated one. It likely came down to limited scheduling with an undoubtedly busy Downey, or maybe Sega and or Secret Level couldn't, or wouldn't, pony up the cash to actually get the full game's worth of performance out of him. Ultimately, though, this is something of a half-measure. It probably would have been a better idea, just for consistency's sake, to go with Stan for the entire thing, as opposed with seemingly trying to pull something of a fast one on audiences. After all, in March of 2008, Sega actively publicized the involvement of members of the film's cast, and conveniently forgot to mention that Downey would only be voicing Tony Stark for about 25% of the full experience. Still, other actors from the film, including the aforementioned Sean Tube and Terrence Howard, did perform in the game, with Howard being the only cast member who reprises his role of James Rhodes consistently from the beginning of the game to the end. Now, that aspect, of course, doesn't impact the way the game plays, but it does represent something that this game would do quite a bit, even in the gameplay arena, throughout the entire experience. Cut corners. For most of the positive aspects of the actual mechanical part of the experience that can be listed, it's almost like the things that you can mention that then quickly drag things down are on a one-to-one -one ratio. Unfortunately, though, the things that drag it down generally have more of an impact on the experience when compared with the things that lift it up. In the early going, it's hard to tell that anything is wrong. During your escape from the Ten Rings compound in Afghanistan, your time in the Mark I armor constitutes a pretty basic locomotion tutorial. You obviously can't fly yet, your repulsors have yet to be created, and all you have are some missiles and some pretty badass flamethrowers. The only real negative at the beginning is that the controls while running on the ground are a little too loose. Stopping and turning around quickly feels like Tony is sliding on ice a little bit and isn't quite as responsive to changes in direction as it probably should be. Still, use of your early arsenal of weapons and facing a legion of your captors who fall to your flames is satisfying, even if the enemy defeated animation is a little too stiff for its own good. Starting the second level, and after another jarring Downey to Stanton transition, also feels pretty good, because this level acts as your flight tutorial. The flight mechanics in the game, to put it simply, far and away constitute the experience's best part. While there are very notable shortcomings in controlling Iron Man on the ground, the ease and general fluidity of the flight controls make up for this in spades, especially considering you'll likely spend way more time in the air than you will on the ground. Flying isn't perfect, in fact, maneuverability while flying on the higher end of your top cruising speed without a jet boost is a little too stiff, but it feels pretty damn good, and it also looks phenomenal, even today. Camera control is generally solid, and the enemies you're then charged with defeating at this point 
represent a minimal challenge. This is actually a pretty good thing, because it does fulfill the inherent power fantasy that Iron Man represents pretty well. You feel like a one-man army, taking the fight to those who dare cross your path. Not even gunship helicopters and heavily armed henchmen are enough for you, the Invincible Iron Man. This, though, is where the aesthetic presentation and overall graphical fidelity begin to start coming apart. While Iron Man looks great in flight across the massive outdoor landscapes, getting a look closer to the ground level shows that Secret Level may have compromised a little too much with up-close ground textures and general detail looking downright unappealing when compared with how the maps and characters look from higher altitudes. The third level, Stark Weapons, is your first chance to put everything you've learned up to this point to the test. In the fully-fledged Mark III armor, you're charged with returning to Afghanistan and destroying the remaining stockpiled Stark Industries weapons that Tony learned about while in captivity and let loose on the unsuspecting members of the Ten Rings with the full might of your first, proper, primary suit. It's in this level that you also get to fully realize your combat prowess. When confronted with missile-firing helicopters, you can grab a missile right out of the air with the right timing and huck it right back at them, likely bringing your assailant down with a single, well-timed button press. Raining down your repulsors and the unibeam feels pretty great as you completely atomize the weapons you came to destroy, and the wide open space of the map gives you plenty of room to test out some of your fancier moves in flight as well. The end of the third mission also gives you a unique opportunity. You see, after you've destroyed all the weapons, your actions catch the attention of the United States Air Force, and your old buddy, Colonel James Rhodes, dispatches a couple of fighter jets in your direction. Obviously, as Iron Man, you don't want to harm the pilots, so while you could conceivably outright destroy them, the far more rewarding path is to wait for each jet to come to you. When it does, you can catch it, very much like you've just done for enemy missiles, and guide it to the ground, which gives the pilot just enough time to eject to safety. This part does an excellent job of evoking the Iron Man movie at a similar point in its plot. On top of that, Terrence Howard definitely gives his turn as James Rhodes, which would also turn out to be his final time playing the character, the right amount of energy and authenticity. Then, well, then, it's time for the fourth mission. Unfortunately, the vast majority of goodwill that the game may have built up in your experience by this point will likely have been entirely diminished by the time you get on the other side of level number four. This is when things go from being generally okay to cripplingly bad. It's honestly very surprising how badly the game falls apart coming off of three generally simple, if enjoyable, levels. I'm getting depressed just thinking about it. Some absolutely baffling design choices and an unrelenting onslaught of total crap makes the game play like you're driving through a cloud of bugs in the summer at 70 miles an hour. It's pretty hard to see five feet down the road in front of you if your windshield is covered in splattered insect guts. And trying to wipe them off only makes it worse. So, what does that mean? Well, level 4, Magia Factories, 
charges you with coming upon a stronghold of some former Stark customers who've been stockpiling weapons for their own ends while also employing slave labor in factories to create bootlegged versions of those same Stark weapons. Your mission? Destroy the factories and their weapons and set their workers free. Seems like a pretty basic setup, and not dissimilar from the last level, right? Well, it's not, but the difference is in the ludicrously spiked difficulty from one mission to the next, where in the previous couple of levels you're given a pretty easily manageable number of enemies to deal with, level 4 is when the game begins piling on enemy after enemy, missile after missile, turret after turret, helicopter after helicopter, and so on, in such rapid succession that your imminent death is no longer a question. It's an inevitability, particularly if you have the gall to play on Invincible, the game's highest difficulty setting. Not only do you have to contend with a ludicrous number of enemies and oncoming fire on the screen all at once, but you'll also be given a rough time limit within which you need to accomplish specific tasks while throwing caution to the wind, taking a ton of fire from all sorts of indiscernible directions. That is actually where most of the problem lies. It's not just that you're taking so much fire from every turn, it's that it's utterly impossible to tell where some of the heavier fire is coming from. So by this point, when playing on either normal or hard, you'll likely encounter your first game over screen. As you get ready to dust yourself off and try once again, the game's single, biggest, absolutely cardinal sin begins to take form. You press A or X to continue, and in an amazing oversight of game design that manages to be as baffling as it is totally enraging, it becomes clear. Even with the immense spike in difficulty, likely necessitating far more than a single try from this point forward, the developers didn't include any mid-level checkpoints. None. At all. So, on top of the mountain of frustration, particularly if you had managed to survive to the very end of the level and just about managed to beat its final boss, your death sends you back to the very beginning, where you're then forced to overcome the same amount of totally enraging overkill crap that you thought you had just put behind you a few minutes ago. The sheer stupidity and needless torture that this design choice creates in most gamers cannot be overstated. And again, this is a full team of talented, passionate game developers who had to have known, had to have known on some level, that this would be a blindingly bad choice to make in Iron Man's construction. If you're going to consciously design a game that features such a massive difficulty spike less than halfway through the whole experience, a necessary component of balance demands that there be at least one mid-level checkpoint so that the player doesn't simply bubble up with enough frustration to destroy every small object in their living room. That balance in Iron Man, though, is non-existent. It's enough of an oversight to take the entire project and all the man-hours likely put in by the devs at secret level from an okay game to an irredeemably bad one. 
And for those listening who think I may be overreacting, you likely haven't played this game above easy. There's no way around it. Having no mid-level checkpoints at all absolutely kills Iron Man as a video game experience. Would Halo be as popular as it is today if Legendary difficulty didn't include scraping and struggling to get to the next autosave checkpoint, followed by the pure emotional ecstasy of barely making it through a difficult encounter? I don't think so. So, if you're still resolved to play through the game, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that whatever power fantasy you thought you'd be able to experience in the opening levels is no longer going to cut it. The idea of being a one-man army is quickly made irrelevant by the actual armies the game places in front of you. So, this forces you to try and use the expansive maps of each level to your advantage by trying to drift ever closer to your objective targets while staying as far away as possible in order to pull the trigger repeatedly and blast them with your repulsors while hopefully staying out of range of all the other enemies and their inconceivably far-reaching pin-precision accuracy from faraway firing distances. You'll also need to frequently fly behind cover in order to recharge your health many times over, presuming you're not quickly killed and given another game over screen while your back is turned en route to your desperate dash to health replenishing cover. That scenario is comically difficult, and would likely play more appropriately with some Benny Hill music playing over it, just to emphasize how ridiculous and stupid those kinds of moments truly are. From here, it's rinse and repeat. And if you actually manage to make it to the final boss in Ironmonger, then congratulations. By this point, you're no doubt demoralized, scraping up just enough energy to throw the game disc out your window like a frisbee, content with the idea that it'll likely crack after being run over a couple dozen times in the middle of the street. So after all of that, it feels like a hell of a comedown to have to say that Unfortunately, even with some well-designed aspects working in its favor, Secret Level's Iron Man is largely relegated to the overflowing dustbin of stories revolving around poorly received movie-licensed video games. When it was finally released, the gaming press took similar notice of its crippling shortcomings and absolutely trashed the game in time for its street date. The official Xbox magazine awarded Iron Man an unceremonious score of 5 out of 10. GamesRadar's Justin Toll said, quote, Iron Man is playable-ish. When you can manage to carefully soar through the skyscrapers in the sun, it can look very impressive, with huge draw distances and a reasonably stable frame rate. But Iron Man is so jerky to control, he's totally without grace. Much like the game as a whole, in fact. He awarded it two stars out of five. GameSpot's Chris Waters said, Punishing difficulty and repetitive level design are the real villains here, and these two aggravating flaws are more than enough to keep Iron Man from flying high. In the end, he awarded it a mediocre score of 5.5 out of 10. Eurogamer's Dan Whitehead titled his review Wretched and Clank before elaborating on his pun. He said, quote, 
Rather than allowing you to feel like an armored Avenger, Iron Man's video game outing merely offers the chance to lurch awkwardly around the sky like a drunken wasp while holding down a button to blow stuff up. The idea that people might turn to this ham-fisted misfire in order to relive the boundless fun of the movie is quite depressing. What's the next big movie game, Hulk? Hey, maybe that'll be good." End quote. He brought the hammer down with a score of 3 out of 10. IGN's Greg Miller's similarly heavy disappointment was on display in his review when he said, To begin with, let me be the first to say, this game sucks. Oh my god, ladies and gentlemen, I haven't thrown a controller since 2002, but this game had me hurling controllers all over the IGN office. The problem with Iron Man on the current gen systems is simply there's just too much going on and it doesn't make any sense what's happening. It does not feel like I'm a superhero, it feels like I'm a lame ass in a suit. If you can't tell, he didn't like it. He awarded it a 3.8 out of 10. So, once again, it appears that a seemingly very promising development team, paired with a character with decades of legacy across multimedia, just couldn't coalesce into a memorable, or at least positively memorable, video game experience this time around. So what happened? Let's wind this down with some final thoughts. As you probably guessed by this point, it looks like the primary culprit here was, once again, time. As is so common with licensed movie video game tie-ins, the real crunch in making sure the game was created, packaged, and delivered in time for the Iron Man movie's theatrical bow probably made the devs at Secret Level work a little too quickly in order to make their street date at all costs. Over the course of playing the game, the obviously cut corners in everything from the art assets to the level design, and most especially the complete lack of a mid-level checkpoint system, show a game that was likely shepherded in and out of the design phase a little too quickly. Beyond that, the mandate handed down by Sega that effectively split the development team between two concurrent projects also likely caused both games to suffer significantly. Though Sega bought Secret Level in the first place because of their promising work on Golden Axe Beast Rider, which ended up releasing just five months after the release of Iron Man, that game's critical reception fared similarly to Iron Man's, with an aggregated score on Metacritic of only 44%. Two disappointing outcomes for back-to-back -back projects from a studio that represented a significant investment, by all accounts, caused Sega to go into something of a panic. The change in direction for the studio was, from their perspective, sorely needed, because of course it couldn't be their fault, right? Not long after the failure of both games, Sega reorganized the studio the following year by placing it under new leadership and by giving it a brand new name, Sega Studios San Francisco, emphasizing its ownership by the publisher, as well as the fact that it was also a Western studio. The locked-in deal with Marvel on the licensing front, coupled with the runaway success of the Iron Man feature film at the global box office, once again put the ball of responsibility of a video game tie-in for the now fast-tracked Iron Man 2 back in their court. With their top-down corrections to the recently rebranded Iron Man developer, and with that team's familiarity with the Iron Man IP, not to mention the flood of criticism that poured in on the heels of the game itself, saw Sega give the San Francisco developers a chance to redeem both themselves and their parent company, 
in the minds of gamers everywhere. By all accounts, development on what would become the video game adaptation for Iron Man 2 began pretty quickly after it became clear that it would be a project of priority, and Sega Studios San Francisco began to take their second crack at an interactive experience featuring the old shellhead. That, of course, is a story for another time. But unfortunately, this can be said for certain. Whether it was the result of too little lead time or developmental stumbles, work on Iron Man 2 would end up being the studio's last. As for the Iron Man character himself, his inaugural film ended up doing a significant number of favors for him, catapulting the character into the upper echelon of superheroes and bringing him a greater level of prominence in the comic book universe where he hangs his helmet, where he's pretty much stayed ever since. Because of that, the once limited history of the Invincible Iron Man in the world of video games, as it soon became clear, was now really only just beginning. Is it better to be feared or respected? Well, comics readers, movie audiences, gamers, and more now all seem to answer in unison. Is it too much to ask for both? And with that, we finally reached the end of the story for 2008's Iron Man, developed by Secret Level and published by Sega. The real tragedy here is that this game could have absolutely been more than it ended up being, but the story for Iron Man and Secret Level, or Sega Studios San Francisco, isn't quite finished yet. If you'd like to hear the story of Iron Man 2, be sure to let me know through the various social media channels for this show, or send me an email. Just don't expect that story to be happier than this one. However, as for right now, that's going to do it for issue number 10 of Comics on Consoles. Again, a very special thanks to everyone who supported the show during its hiatus, and thank you for your continued persistence in telling me that you thought this show was of value and that you wanted more of it. I honestly don't know how each issue will land with people unless they express how they feel about it, so I encourage you to please write a review for the show on iTunes, write one on Facebook, or on our host Podbean, and let me know what you liked and what you didn't about the newest issue. I also want to throw out a special thank you to friends of the show. Chris Baker, who now has his own YouTube channel discussing our favorite superhero gaming topics, is a very valuable friend I've made in this endeavor. As is Josh Sutton, whose YouTube channel Panels to Pixels provides a valuable perspective on comics-based gaming and the legacies of these characters in the interactive medium. I wouldn't have met either of those fine gentlemen, though, if not for Blair Farrell, the webmaster of ComicGamersAssemble.com, whose website and Facebook group provides a great place for superhero fans and gamers to come together to talk about our favorite characters and their legacies in the world of video games. To all of those guys, thank you so much for helping me out when I needed it. One final thank you I want to throw out is to my former colleague Ben Pearson, who approached Comics on Consoles as one of the first members of Geek Tyrant's Pod Tyrant podcast network. Unfortunately, the network is no longer around, but I've always appreciated Ben's confidence in me and sincerely appreciate the fact that he wanted this show to help build out that effort. Thanks, Ben. Now, since issue number 10 has finally come out, 
and we've reached the end. Those of you who've downloaded this episode may rightfully be asking, what's next? Well, for our next subject game, I definitely want to transition into some older releases, since I've had more than a few people ask me directly when I'm going to go beyond the 3D era and into the more celebrated and influential 2D releases. To transition myself in that direction, though, I'm not quite done with 3D games. There's one more I want to do before we tap our toes into the well of retro comics-based games, and the reason I want to do this 3D game first is because of its sheer and utter importance to the gaming landscape we enjoy today. So, to that end, we're going to go as far back as we have in the history of the show by looking at a video game that, arguably, is just as important a pillar to superhero video games as 1978's Superman has been to superhero movies. It was a fundamental game-changer in the way that we enjoy interactive adventures featuring comics' most iconic characters, setting the standard for the kind of game that most of the best superhero games of the last two decades have always been, third-person action games. So to that end, come back next time, as Comics on Consoles issue number 11 throws in with a guy who J. Jonah Jameson keeps calling a menace but somehow can't stop obsessing over getting as many pictures of him to look at as he can get his grubby little hands on. Yes, at long last, we're finally jumping into the air of New York City and swinging from a thread as people take a look overhead. Look out, we'll be playing Spider-Man, developed by Neversoft and published by Activision in the year 2000 for the Sony PlayStation, Nintendo 64, and Sega Dreamcast. In the meantime, follow Comics on Consoles on Facebook and Twitter, check out our website, comicsonconsoles.com, and be sure to subscribe to the show via your favorite podcasting app of choice, which by the time this show goes live, hopefully includes Stitcher. Comics on Consoles is a member of the Batman Podcast Network. To send the show your thoughts, get in touch through our social media channels, or email me directly by sending a message to chris at comicsonconsoles.com. Until next time, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, now more than ever, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, why not play one in a video game? Thanks for listening and once again sticking with us. Take care, and we will talk with you again soon.